We're taking a short break this week. We'll have fresh interviews with Australia's technology leaders soon. For now, enjoy this flashback to our discussion with Creditor Watch CTO Joseph Vartuli. Hello and welcome to this week's IT News Podcast. On the show this week is Joseph Vartuli, the Chief Technology Officer of Creditor Watch. Creditor Watch is an Australian commercial credit reporting bureau with over 50,000 customers. Joseph joins us to talk about everything from the technology team and architecture to the organization's dev culture and the origins of key practices. Please enjoy the conversation. Maybe just to start with, can you give us a bit of an overview of Creditor Watch and of the company's technology operations? Creditor Watch started about 10 years ago by a gentleman called Colin Porter. He was previously a advertiser, so he had a couple of advertising businesses and was constantly finding that some of his debtors were what they called debt hopping, so going from creditor to creditor not paying. The way he kind of found that out was he'd actually call his competitors and say, hey, did XYZ pay you or did ABC pay you? And sure enough, it'd be the same sort of people. So he looked into it and thought there needs to be some sort of way and obviously came across credit reporting agencies, two in Australia at that particular time, but very much targeted towards the top end of town. So you're talking a couple of hundred thousand dollars to start accessing the platform, which obviously for a small business just isn't accessible. So you kind of saw there as an opportunity and what was starting off as, hey, let's just get a bunch of creditors together to talk and share information about who's not paying or who's not paying well, really transformed to within that first couple of years, a proper credit reporting agency. The first year, they really transformed that. So they became an ASIC licensed broker. They got access access to some more public information. And then what was started off as like this $29 a month plan, we saw them grow dramatically and eat their way through from the bottom, from those small businesses, all the way now to what we deal with with large enterprises. Because we started at that bottom end, the data that we have is extremely rich. The way to kind of think about it is is that if you're in business, you wouldn't stop paying your electricity bill first. You wouldn't stop paying your water bill first because they're essential services that you need to keep your business running. You'd more likely to disappear with like your cleaners, something that you can go replace. So we were finding that we were getting these early warning predictions far earlier than the other two bureaus that were out there. What started off really small in a single data center, I think there was a little private owned data center, single server in 2010, has now fledged to hundreds and terabytes worth of data in AWS. And the technology stack is actually quite interesting. About four years ago, I joined Creditor Watch to kind of help grow them. And what started as three developers, we're now a team of 35. So it's been a great journey along that way. So when you were talking about there around the early warnings that you're getting within your system, how are you recognizing those patterns or early warnings? Credit Watch does a couple of things really well. So we crowdsource information from our customers. So now we're over 50,000. So we're Australia's largest commercial credit bureau by customer volume. And because you've got that, our customers can share information to say what we call a payment default, i.e. an invoice hasn't been paid by a particular debtor. So you've got the ability to lodge that to say, this particular business hasn't paid me this amount and it's overdue by this amount. So that information gets shared very quickly to any company that is monitoring that particular business. The other kind of factors to it is that while the other two bureaus have always relied on what's called age trial balances, so a monthly snapshot of who owes you what, and in like these three categories of zero to 30 days, 30 to 60, 60 to 90, 
not only do we support that, but we've actually also got the world's only integrations with Zero and MYB. So when a customer joins, they've got the ability to let us access those particular software and we get that in five-minute incremental cycles. So we can start to see when a business, because I see with this crowdsourcing effect, you start to get this networking payment effect where you can actually start to see where a particular debtor is slowly paying their bills slower and slower, So which kind of starts to give you a bit of an early warning side of cash flow problems. What do you use that information for? So when you start to notice those early warning signs that a particular debtor is starting to default on payments or starting to change the way or maybe the time between when they're invoiced and when they're paid, what actually happens as an action item within the system? Credit Watch is really all about real-time information. So one thing that we do quite uniquely in the market is something in monitoring and alerting. As a customer, if you want to monitor all of your particular customers or all your particular debtors, you might say have 300, you can go into our system, you can select monitor all these particular businesses. And then if anything adverse comes up, whether it's a court action that's against that particular debtor of yours, if it's a payment default or payment times are starting to slip out, We'll actually email you a really nice summary on a daily basis to say, look, these are probably the things and we kind of categorize it in high, medium and lows to say, look, these are probably the things you should be really concerned about today. Have a look into it. We don't ever say stop doing business with this particular person. It's there as an action item for you to start gathering more information and say, maybe you should call that debtor, find out what's going on, because you might be finding that there's some really simple explanations behind the scenes, or you might uncover the fact that there is actually something a little bit more more sinister happening and you need to be a bit more wary. You talked very briefly about the technology stack being in AWS. Are you a full AWS stack or are there a lot of different elements? We are completely in AWS. From our perspective, we're a fairly lean team still. At 35 and being Australia's largest commercial credit bureau, we're fairly lean. And in about 2014, that migration occurred to AWS. And since then, we managed to run the entire business. So when we talk about from an operations perspective with two DevOps people, and the reason why we're able to do that is because we choose AWS managed services first. We don't really want the hassle to deal with services and servers. And because of that, we're able to stay really lean and agile as part of that whole process. Again, things like we're very much in the whole event data streaming side of things at the moment. So we use AWS Kinesis to stream our data from over 30 different sources across Australia. Some of that is crowdsourced. Some of that comes from governments like ASIC and ABR information. Then that goes through to what we call our data lake and our BI platform, our business intelligence, where we sit there and run the algorithms that try to create those predictive credit ratings that we're able to provide to our customers. And you mentioned AMS there, AWS Managed Services. Can you talk a little bit about the interplay there between them and your team and where the handoffs are? Managed services, are, like they're a great way to allow somebody else to look after the reliability of the services. When you're talking about AWS Kinesis or using serverless Aurora or Lambdas, we don't have to actually worry about the servers themselves updating, patching, doing all of that because it's actually already handled behind the scenes. So our DevOps really focus on the more time critical and high value aspect of coding. So providing tools for our developers to be able to push logs streamlessly into our platform. They provide some frameworks to be able to build our Docker containers that run on AWS Fargate. Again, another serverless technology by AWS where we don't really need to know what happens behind the scenes. We can deploy our Dockers and it will scale for us automatically based on the metrics that we kind of define. 
So you joined Creditor Watch back in 2018. I wondered if you could just talk us through how you approached the role and the culture you've tried to build and how you've sought to evolve the operation. I think in 2018, like I said, there was only the three or four developers when we first joined. They just recently had been purchased by InfoTrack and kind of looked towards, we kind of need someone to help grow the business now, specifically the technology side. They didn't really have the expertise in-house, so obviously they went on that journey and found myself. When we first got in there, it was just laying the foundations correctly. We hired probably three really senior developers at that particular time within those first couple of months, and we just started laying those foundational footprints. So just making for everything from a security point of view was all checked off. We're looking at things like getting your architecture in a really decent state to be able to grow that to the next level. And I think really early on, from my perspective, it's always been about trust and empathy. So we always try and build a lot of autonomy within our team. So the team, even when I first joined, was already very strong. They had some really strong employees there. And what's great is those employees are still here. So we've got a great retention rate in that. But when you're able to provide people with goals and just say, look, don't really mind how you get there here's your goal. It's up to you to figure out how and when you get there. People love that responsibility and that challenge. And that's really taken that to another stage. With that, like I said, you've got a lot of empathy, a lot of trust in those particular people. And when you play that card first, I think it comes back to you tenfold. And since then, we've got a really tight-knit team. People kind of treat I know a lot of people probably say this, but they kind of treat it as a family, as the big CW family. But we're always on the lookout. Everyone's really open on us. Hey, look, mental issue today. I'm going to take the day off. I just want to have a relaxing day. And I think everyone sits there and supports them. Yep, that's cool. We'll take you on your role. So you'll never hear the word, hey, that's not my job. That's not in my job description from anyone in our particular team. So from our perspective, that's been a really great initiative and has definitely paid off with that loyalty that comes back. And what was behind the growth? So from three developers to the 35, obviously it's a huge increase in a reasonably short period of time. Was it an under-resourcing issue previously or are you just growing and there's a whole lot of new stuff that's come online since then? There's probably a combination of both. Obviously, when you're talking about a business that is just being established, there's always a balance between your profit and how much investment you can particularly make into a business. InfoTrack was that big resource that was able to purchase CreditWatch and provide that funding. So one aspect came from there. The other aspect was CreditWatch is actually a great product. It's got probably 12 different little products within the product suite. And at that particular time, it was always just pick and choose which one you get to work on in that particular quarter. And it's not something that we really want to do, but I think it started off like that. It would have been obviously great to try and expand overnight to 35, but that generally is a recipe for disaster to grow that quickly. So it's been that exponential curve where we've brought on those senior people, those first three individuals, so they had the team of six, and we've slowly built up. But then I think it was really when we got to that 15 to 20 that we kind of just went, okay, cool flick a switch and we went to 30 really quickly and then we've got another five and we were planned to have another 15 hopefully by the end of this calendar year. And how are you managing the pipeline of features and feature development now that you've got more resources, now that you don't have to choose every quarter what you're particularly working on? Yeah, so look, I kind of always feel like if you're not prioritizing, if you're not having to make tough choices with prioritization, you're probably going to over-resource that at that particular stage. So that's something that I've been very conscious with, with the exec team and the CEO. You don't want to ever have a situation where you can say, hey, we get to do everything because I have a feeling you're not really making those hard choices about what's really necessary. But 
what we have done is quite recently, probably over the last sort of 18 months, is turn into what we call product teams. So you set up really small teams of a QA, six-ish devs, a DevOps person, and a product owner or a product manager. And you kind of assign them one or two products within our product suite. So we've now are at that point where we've got five of those particular product teams set up looking after two to three little products depending on each product team they themselves build roadmaps so they look at what's happening over the next quarter then they also have what's happening over the next 12 months the next 12 months is obviously really high level not really set in stone things change obviously every quarter but what you've got going is before the next quarter starts you've already spoken to your customers what are your requirements what are your needs what are troubling you on a particular daily basis and you try and grab those commonalities from those particular customers Customers. You obviously work with stakeholders and particularly our sales team who are constantly in talks with our customers about what their problems are and great ideas that they might have. And we try and feed that into the product roadmap. And then you sit there again during those prioritization sessions, you've got that big list. If you can cover the top five in a quarter, that would be great. And is there advantages in having that specialization on the product team side in sort of two or three different elements of this broader Credit Watch product? Or is there potential for people within one product team to move into another product team at some point to try their hand at different things? What was amazing is I think one of the biggest feedbacks we had for our developers at the initially was like, I'm context switching every quarter. I'm working on this and then I'm working on this and I'm working on this. I'd love to be able to get into something really solid and just have a focus for 12 months. 18 months ago, we did that journey. I think that novelty wore off and they're like, I really loved the fact that I used to be able to jump between things and change and really made everything dynamic. So look, what we've worked out is we try and have a balance. Teams need to be from a product and resourcing. It's just too hard to kind of say, hey, every quarter you get to jump ship and go to whichever product you want because obviously everyone wants to do something. But we say if you can provide two or three quarters commitment every single time you do make that jump, then you get a little bit of both words where you're probably not always working on the same product for an entire year. You get something brand new and then it gives that refresh. There's probably a little bit of loss in terms of individual productivity, but from a morale point of view, from that retention point of view, that ability to move around and really change technologies because in our data ingestion team, it's hugely focused on event streaming and processing. And then you go to our analytics team and obviously there's a lot of machine learning and the data lake. And then you go to our API team that's looking after all of our APIs and there's another set of challenges that goes on there. So I think people get to refine their skills. So I think you got to use it to the best of your advantage. So you've talked a bit about some of these cultural principles that you've brought into play with the organization since you started there. From my perspective, it'd be useful maybe to just understand a little bit about the origins of some of those principles and why you consider them as important within the culture of the um, team for about 20 years now being a developer and you see a lot of things. I've worked for really large organizations like News Limited and VMware and I've worked for really tiny consultancy businesses and I think there's some really nice aspects out of them both from a large enterprise. You've got the ability to work with some really great tech and then from a small business you get to see the impacts of that and you get to wear those multiple hats. So from my perspective the developers know the product extremely well and if you can try and pair them with salespeople. So all of their targets that they have, so what we call OKRs in a particular quarter, have sales targets. So it means that they're sitting there saying, look, not only do you need to release this feature or not only do you need to improve it, but you actually need to make sure that X number of customers are using it or it's bringing in X number of dollars by the end of it. So all of a sudden, that means that a developer is able to 
go off to a salesperson and help. There's not often many organizations where you'll find a developer trying to kick a salesperson and go, hurry up, go sell because I need you to so I can hit my targets. So that provides a lot of that autonomy. There's obviously restrictions in terms of you can't go off and use Erlang or some really obscure language that's going to be hard to recruit for. But when you give them that freedom, plus the responsibility and a goal to design it, you get the best of both worlds. And people really take that to heart. Like they love the idea that I get to shape something. I get to build something the way that I want it. There's no real restrictions in terms of I really need to refactor this or need to do that. We kind of take it part and parcel. If you go too far, you fail in your own goal because obviously you've just spent time refactoring versus if you just rush it out, generally problems end up occurring. You don't make the sales targets either. So they find this really interesting balance to try and get that. And I don't know about you, when you've got that trust and autonomy to say, hey, no one's looking over my shoulder. I just give my update on a weekly basis about how I'm going in my project. Well, all of a sudden, you provide a really healthy environment. The other component to it is we're very, very much healthy body, healthy mind type of a business. We're asking our developers, what do you do outside of work? Hopefully, we don't hear is, oh, I code. And when I'm not coding, I'm coding. And when I'm not coding on that, I'm reading about coding because that's not really what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to find people that will have some sort of interesting hobbies. We've got some people that make planes. I go photography, walking, running, swimming. And Credit Watch provides gym membership as part of that. So we do really focus on every day, make sure that you're taking a break from your desk, you're getting up, go for a run, get out, do something active because it's not really healthy to just be sitting behind your desk all day. Although it might feel productive over the long term, it really isn't. Mm, that's interesting you talk about that coding outside of work thing because there's a lot of glamorization of extracurricular experimentation and the idea that you could do things that will be outside of the business as usual function and you'll be able to then bring that into the organization. Um, yeah, that, that one there is a really interesting component because obviously we don't discourage that. If that's someone that wants to do that, that's fine, but it can't be just that. And nor do we expect there to be no learning within the business either. So we provide resources, books. We've got what we call our Credit Watch University. We do our hackathons every quarter and that goes for two to three days every particular quarter where people get to refine their skills. So I also kind of feel like I think that glamorization of having to work outside of those hours to pick up that tech doesn't happen here because we allow them to choose that particular tech or play around with that particular, either in hackathons or within their projects to go, hey, I can do that. And that doesn't mean it's always going to be perfect. Anyone who learns a technology the first time probably isn't implementing it the exact correct way. But there's learnings that come along with that. And then we take that. And I really do hope that our team is learning a lot of that information in-house during business hours whilst they're getting paid so that they can go home to family and to enjoy some of their other activities. So I imagine this is pretty helpful positioning in terms of attracting talent to the organization. Obviously, the market is really super competitive right now for any kind of digital skills or ancillary digital skills, really hard to recruit for. How do you set yourself apart from some of the much more bigger resourced or well-resourced blue chips and the hyperscalers who have come out of this digital transformation period with extraordinarily deep pockets and resources, they can throw people. So it's quite interesting. 
there's only going to be ever one company that's going to be the biggest, highest point in terms of pay and salary. So there's always going to be the one. So to sit there and say, I need to either be that one, otherwise I'm going to lose talent is probably an interesting component. Obviously, you need to keep competitive at least with salaries, but by no means are we at that end of the scale where generally 30 or 40% on top of what the average market plays. I definitely do feel like we're competitive in that space. But it comes down to more than that. It's the opportunities that you're being able to provide them. It's the fact that you're able to allow them to do their work. It's the opportunities that the fact that they don't have to be getting up at 6am and finishing at 10pm. Even 12 or 14 hour days is really highly discouraged in our business. We don't want to see that on a continual basis. We love the fact that you can provide that autonomy. People want to stay with a fun group that they get to do things. So we also offer quite a few other things. So Pre-pandemic, things started to get a bit normal, but obviously, again, we've been thrown into another lockdown. But pre-pandemic, every month, we were really fortunate as part of the ATI group. We got to jump onto a boat and that was part of the group. So you'd book that in advance. So on a monthly basis, we'd get together and we'd just hang out for a whole day. We went axe throwing quite recently, just before the pandemic. Something that makes people bond. You need that bonding experience. So even out of our first lockdown, when people were saying, do I want to work? purely remotely or do I want to work just in the office? We don't see it like that. I think it's a hybrid approach. You want to listen to your developers in terms of what they want. There were some that were saying, hey, look, I'd love to be purely remote, but I don't think that lasted very long because we were such a social group. People were missing each other. So I can remember quite distinctly the first day that we all came together as a group. I don't think we did any work. Everyone hung out at the bar that was within our office, hung out at the bar, having chat. People were just catching up. And that was really missed. Our last sort of two or three hires have been from companies where they were purely remote. And when you sat there and you spoke to them, like, well, why do you want to leave? And they're like, because I don't feel anything. I haven't met my team. I haven't gone out with them and they're talking about being purely remote, maybe indefinitely. So from their perspective, it is that balance. So we only come in on Tuesdays and Thursdays and then, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you're at home getting to do it. So we also did that quite strategically to say there's never more than one business that you have to be a part if you want to sit down and talk to someone about a particular problem that's a little bit too hard to do over conferencing. Obviously, now over these last what was it, four weeks, we were in full lockdown again. So right. we are back to fully remote. We were always, even when people were talking about businesses struggling to pick up and go remote, developers and ourselves, and we've always been in the cloud. We've always allowed people, everyone's on a laptop. So literally, I think our biggest challenge was, hey, guys, do we need to provide you some desks and chairs at home? That was our biggest challenge because we didn't want people working on a couch or a dining table. So that was our biggest challenge. But from a technology point of view, we did have to fine-tune probably some conferencing tools. We used Slack heavily, wanting to get some virtual whiteboards in place. Once we got that going, I think most of it kind of fell into place. But people are still more productive at home. So I kind of always believe it's individual productivity is really high in a remote place. But then trying to push 35, and when we're talking about 100 people, when we've got the salespeople involved, trying to push 100 people all in the same direction becomes a lot harder to convey that message and push that out. So you lose the productivity from a company point of view.
The individual productivity thing, I think you've seen a lot of research on, I think Atlassian looked in through their tools and saw a lot of growth in the individual productivity side of yeah. things. It's, it's just a difficult kind of balancing act though, because as you say, you're not necessarily wanting people to be spending their entire lives working, but there is that kind of pressure or it becomes easier when your work and your home is the same place. A hundred percent. Look, when you don't have to travel, this delineation between what's work and home is obviously a lot more blurred. When you're sitting there, it's like, oh, it's only 5.30. Oh, it's only six o'clock. I'm home. I just have to get up and bake some beans for dinner. <laughs> like that's what it ends up coming to because you can't go out. There's no restaurants. There's nothing that's around. So everything becomes really simplistic. And if it just becomes this really interesting, oh, but that's okay. Then all of a sudden it is seven o'clock. Where's my downtime? When do I get to actually do that hobby that we've looked so hard for when we've hired our developers? Is there anything else you wanted to get across or you wanted to talk about? I guess the only other thing that we really want to talk about was our retention rate is, is mm. still huge. And I think a bigger of that is how much autonomy and that trust that we have in people and just listening out and really hearing what people need and want and trying to balance it out. Not every individual gets everything they want, I guess, from a particular point of view. There's a bit of a group consensus, but as long as everyone can see that we are taking that group consensus and we're trying to balance everybody's needs, people really appreciate that. And that really has led to us having a remarkable retention. We've only really lost the one developer since I've been with CreditWatch, and that's 35 people that we've had gone through. So from our perspective, you know, that's something that I don't think very many businesses can boast about. We're fairly happy. And I think that's not just a me thing. That comes down to how we've hired. That comes down from our CEO, Patrick Coughlin, and our GM and our marketing executives there that all really play a role in what do we expect out of these individuals and how much do we push them versus allowing them to do what they need to do to ensure that we're thriving. That was Joseph Fartuli from Creditor Watch. And that's the podcast for this week. We'll be back with an exciting new interview next week. Until then, you can catch all the latest headlines in Australian IT over at itnews.com.au.